You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Without a woman named Mahalia Jackson, you and I probably never know that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had a dream. Mahalia Jackson, some of you may recognize the name of the gospel singer. But without her, the dream wouldn't have come to the surface, wouldn't have broken in on our consciousness as a nation. See, the dream was a hope. The dream was a picture of the future. The dream was a picture of something that people couldn't see in 1963. It was a society in which people were not judged by the color of their skin, but by the content uh, of their character. But that's not the way it looked on August 28th when Martin Luther King Jr. walked up the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, turned his back on Abraham Lincoln and addressed a quarter of a million people on the Washington Mall. He was a man who had hope. He lived with that hope and he spoke that hope into existence. But the question this morning is, how did he find it? Did he find it alone or did he find it together with others? On the night before he gave that speech, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was gathered with some of his friends in the Willard Hotel. They were in a room. They were working hard on the preparations for the march the next day. And he withdrew alone. He said to his friends, I'm going upstairs to counsel with my Lord. So yes, Jesus Christ was the source of that inspiration. But it didn't come to him alone. He did go up to his room, and there he wrestled with his notes and his Savior all night long, did not go to bed until 4 a.m., and when he woke up in the morning, the dream was not in the speech. You know this? There was no I have a dream section in the great speech he would give the next day, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. But when he stood there, he didn't stand alone, did he? You remember the pictures? I love it. I wish I could stand up here with a group of people all around me saying, you go, you know, that, that's what happened. Dr. Martin Luther King is standing there with his team, with a community, with people that knew him, that loved him, that spoke into his life, that were for him, even as they were with him in that most critical hour of his whole life, they were there. And among them was Mahalia Jackson. So he's going through his address and he's talking about the slums of America and the ghettos. And, and all of a sudden, Mahalia Jackson from the behind and the side, she shouts. She starts to raise her voice and she says, tell them about the dream, Martin. And he keeps on going. He talks about the valley of despair and raises her voice. And even more insistently, she says, tell them about the dream. And there's a moment Martin pauses and he looks down at his notes and he drops his notes and he looks out at a quarter of a million Americans and he says to them, I say to you today, my friends, my friends, though, even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. And then he went into the greatest piece of oratory, I think, that has ever issued from this continent. I have a dream today. And the crowd started to thunder. And the people around him, his team, began to egg him on, to spur him forward. All right, you tell him, amen. 
No, he, he didn't find that hope alone. He found it from Jesus Christ in the context of a living community, alive together. Do you have a team like that in your life? Are there people who stand around you and with you and for you as you face whatever challenge you're facing this morning? And I don't know what it is, but wouldn't it be great to go to that sales meeting this week with your people standing right around you? You know, excuse me, you're in the conference room there and they're saying, tell them about the dream, Bill. And you're going, let me tell you about the dream. And all right, and go get them. Wouldn't it be great to take that team when you go into that conference with your professor and you ask them for extension or, or if, or, you know, you parents, when you're trying to negotiate with that little terrorist you call your toddler, wouldn't it be great to have a team saying, you can do this, you can do this, stay calm, stay calm. <clears throat> well, in the body of Christ, you're never alone. And we shouldn't live alone. This winter, we're talking about what it means to be life-changing community, alive together. And we're, we're, we're reviewing for ourselves the five purposes of life-changing community. I'm going to repeat these frequently because I want you to take them into your small group. Let me say them again. The five purposes of life-changing community. This is just what we say at UPC. The first one is study the word. Because all Christian community begins with the self-disclosure of God. The second one is worship the Lord. Because as soon as he reveals himself to you, you're just going to want to respond with worship, adoration, worship the Lord. The third one is care for each other because you discover now we're on this journey together and we get to do that. And then the third, a fourth one is love your neighbor because it's not just about us, it's about our neighbors. Jesus has us on a mission, so we're relating to them. And then finally, relate as friends because our Savior says, I don't call you my servants, I call you my friends. And we ought to live like friends. Together. So those are the five purposes. But what we're doing to enrich our understanding of those, we're going back to the Word of God, the Scripture, and we're looking at the one another passages of the New Testament. Last week we saw that the Word becomes flesh as we love one another. This week I want you to see that the Word gives us hope as we teach one another. So we pull out a Bible and open up to Colossians chapter 3. If you're looking at the Pew Bible, which is uh, there in the rack in front of you, page 958, Colossians chapter 3. And our verse is 16. But as you t- flip over there, let me just tell you that it, it, this verse 16 is embedded in a paragraph that uses one another over and over again. It, it, and I'll let you look at the other ones on your own. But the, the one another that we want to reflect on here this morning is verse 16. So if you're able, would you stand with me and let's, uh, let's teach one another by reading God's word aloud together. And when we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. So that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading his holy word. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom and with gratitude in your hearts, sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. Many years ago, the New York Times ran an ad for a book by a philosopher named Mortimer Adler. And the book was called How to Read a Book. And for the ad, they showed a picture of a young man, a young guy, with a a piece of paper right in front of his eyes. And here's what the copy said. This young man has just received his first love letter. He may have read it three or four times, but he's just beginning. 
To read it as accurately as he would like would require several dictionaries and a good deal of close work with a few experts of etymology and philology. However, he will do all right without them. He will ponder over the exact shade of meaning, every word, every comma. She's headed the letter, Dear John, what he asks himself is the exact significance of those words. Did she refrain from saying, dearest, because she was bashful? Would my dear have sounded too formal? Jeepers, maybe she would have said dear so-and-so to just about anybody. A worried frown will now appear on his face, but it disappears as soon as he really gets to thinking about the first sentence. She certainly wouldn't have written that to just anybody. And so he works his way through the letter, one moment perched blissfully on a cloud, the next moment huddled miserably behind an eight ball. It has started a hundred questions in his mind. He could quote it by heart. In fact, he will to himself for weeks to come. Now, what drives him through that letter? Relationship. Love. Relationship. He's looking for clues. He's looking for signs. He's looking for indications that will give him any kind of intelligence about how he's doing with this woman. Right? He wants to know not just the present of the the relationship, but its future. He's looking for hope. And I want to suggest to you that Paul is offering the Corinthians and us through them the same kind of hope through God's written word. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. If I have two points today, the first one would be, through his word, Jesus constructs hope in our lives. Now, I use that word construct intentionally because Paul is using construction language, dwell. It's it's about building a house. It's about being at home. It's about making space, shelter, space for life to flourish. And what is it that dwells? Not an ancient text, but a living person. Did you catch that? Let the word of Christ dwell. He personifies. Jesus Christ. It's not the word about Christ. It's not the word that Christ spoke. It's the word who is Christ. Jesus Christ. A person will dwell among you as you attend to his written word. As you study the word. As you reflect and meditate on its riches You are inviting the living Lord, Jesus Christ, into your life. It's an act of hospitality. Ever think about it that way? Jesus says in the upper room, as he's preparing to leave, in the night of his betrayal, he says, I go to prepare a place for you. In my father's house are many rooms. And, you know, I've oftentimes thought about that as as though Jesus were preparing a place somewhere else like some kind of heavenly construction project, you know, that Jesus has to, takes a while or something, a skyscraper somewhere in the clouds. But you know what? The more I I get to know Jesus, the more I get to know the text, the more I'm thinking when he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, what he means is, I'm going to prepare a place for me in you. It's better for you if I go. Remember, because if I go, then I can send my spirit and I can abide in you and you can abide in me. It's hospitality when you read the word. You make space for Jesus in your life. I love that story about the road to Emmaus on the first Easter. There are two disciples that are following. They're going home from Jerusalem to Emmaus because they thought that Jesus was the Christ, but they killed him. And they hadn't heard about the resurrection. 
And so Jesus sneaks up on him, one of my favorite texts. He sneaks up on him and he walks beside him and they don't recognize him. Maybe they've just known Jesus from a, a distance, but now he's right there beside him. And he goes, what's the problem? And they bitch and moan and it's just all the self-pitying and whining. Oh, well, we thought everything was going to, just when things were getting good, you know, they snuffed out our hope and now we're in despair. And Jesus goes, oh, you foolish of heart and slow to ber- believe. And then he goes, we read in Luke 24, 27, it says, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that's Jesus, interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. You know, we would call that the Old Testament, but he says, it's all about me. He says, let me just show you. And so, as he does that, by the way, we find out later that their hearts are burning. They go, wow, where are our hearts burning within us? Wasn't that amazing? And, and, and Jesus was, pretends to walk on. They pull in, they say, come and stay with us. They invite him into their home. And there, when Jesus is in their home, at their table, suddenly the blinders fall off and they recognize him. I think that text is there to tell us that when you and I open up this word, this ancient collection of texts, this library, really, of of letters and stories and so forth, Jesus reads with us. Though we can't see him, we can't physically recognize him, he follows the reading of his word with great interest and investment. And he will reveal himself to us. He will make himself at home in us. This week, I got to visit one of the great elder saints of this church, and she's gone through a real struggle, and I asked her about it. I said, how'd you get through that? And she said, well, I'll tell you what. You know, the Lord gave me a verse before it happened to me. I said, really? And she said, yeah, Isaiah 41.10. It says, do not fear, for I'm with you. I am your God. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. The Lord gave me that verse. I think that means she read that verse in her devotions or in her small group or something. And, and somehow it seemed like that's the word for me. And it was in advance of some real struggle that she went through. But she held on to that word. And, and it turned out that it would prove true in her life. And she's different because of it. That's hope. Jesus is constructing hope through his word in our lives. But I want to tell you, it's not just personal Bible study that Paul's talking about here. This is a corporate. It's not just retiring, as Dr. King did, alone into his chamber to counsel with my Lord. This is a gift that is received, not going upstairs, but on the stairs, on the stairs of the Lincoln Memorial, as he stands with his team, as he stands with his community. It's there that he gets to see the future. And that's what Paul's talking about. So if I'm telling you initially that through his word, Jesus constructs hope in our lives, I would also add, secondly, that through a team, Jesus prepares us to live in this hope. That's that's the team. It gives witness to a future that you can't see. These people around you are pointing to Jesus in such a way that you have hope, even in the midst of hopeless situations. It's community as sign. And so this is one of the one another passages. And if you missed last week, let me just give a little review. The, the, the pronoun one another that we're reflecting on, it's used all over the New Testament, is a reciprocal pronoun which means it stands for people when they do something to each other. You can't experience it alone. It's a mutual pronoun. So here we read, uh, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and you ask yourself, well, how is that? Well, the answer is teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. 
Now, this is surprising because we're used to teaching being sort of, there's a person up here who's got the knowledge, and then there's a person down here who's trying to receive the knowledge, right? It's very hierarchical, but not in the church. There's mutuality in the church. Teach one another. This is a community that learns as it teaches, that teaches as it learns. Uh, The teacher is the student. The student is the teacher. There's actually no Yoda and Jedi. Uh, uh, There's no Luke Skywalker, right? This is a community that's growing in its understanding and its knowledge of Jesus Christ together at the same time. Now, this makes those of us who are paid to teach really insecure. What we want Paul to say is pay attention to the preachers and the teachers and the prophets and the apostles. Pay them richly. But you know what? He doesn't say that. He doesn't. i got to be honest here, full disclosure. He, he thinks that the community itself, he thinks that you are fully capable, have been gifted by the Holy Spirit in order to teach one another. To me, this seems totally irresponsible. <laughs> and, you know, and just think of Colossians. Um, you know, Colossians is in Asia Minor, and as I said last week, there's some bad ideas that are running around Asia Minor. And if you read chapter 2, you see some of them. And it's, there are these teachers who are saying, you got to do it this way, these meals and this diet and the ascetics and the festivals and the calendars and... And, and, and Paul knows there are bad ideas and there are threats to the intellectual and spiritual life of this community all around. But he's not worried about that as long as the community will teach one another and admonish one another. If they do that, then Jesus makes his home and dwells richly in their midst. And I think he's confident of that because he knows that this text is in some sense a letter. But he also knows that this community is also a letter. Do you remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul turns to his audience. These are in Corinth, in Greece. And he says to them, you are a letter of Christ. A living, spirit-filled letter of Christ. We don't need any letter and pen and paper and ink because what the world has is you. What you have is each other. And he gets this from Jeremiah. Let me just take a minute and read Jeremiah to you. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. It's one of the two great new covenant prophecies of the Old Testament. Centuries before Jesus came, the Lord spoke to Jeremiah. And he said to him, the days are surely coming, says the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. Someday, this is the future. You can't see it now. Someday we will all know the Lord. Paul begins to believe that this passage is being fulfilled in the first century through Jesus Christ. It hasn't been completed, but it's been started because the Holy Spirit has been poured out on this dynamic body, the body of Christ. And now they do know Jesus and have the capacity to teach each other the one thing that matters. And that is, who is Jesus? To know him intimately, personally. And this is true in my life. I want to tell you this last year, probably the hardest year of my life. And I have, I have grown more in this year than ever before. I have really learned more than I have ever learned. And where did I learn it? Not from grad school. or I learned it from about seven, eight, nine people in my small group. Why? Because they've stood with me as I've gone through the pain. And they have kept pointing me, even as they've pointed themselves to the tech, to Jesus. And they say, look at how real this is for me. And I'm thinking, wow, that's pretty real for me too. 
You see, and together we found hope in this text. Now, that's what the Apostle Paul is doing. I mean, here's the great rabbi, Saul of Tarsus. He's, he's the elite of the elite. He's been trained. He's got an international reputation as a teacher. And yet, the people he claims are regular people like you and me. If you flip to the end of Colossians chapter 4, he starts to list these people. He's, he's in prison, but he's not alone. He says in verse 7, Tychicus, I'll tell you all about him. He's beloved brother. He's a faithful minister. He's a fellow servant of the Lord, Tychicus. And then verse 10, he says, Aristarchus, he's my fellow prisoner. He greets you. And then there's Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Uh, welcome him. Then there's Justice, J-U-S-T-U-S. He greets you. And, and uh, uh, Epaphroditus, Demas greets you. Luke, the beloved physician. These are faithful servants, he says. These are the people. These are Paul's people, and this is the team journeying through his struggle with him. So how do we do this? I want to say that together we can see the problems, but we also see the promises. Teach, that's about content, and admonish, that's about the heart and the will. Teach and admonish one another. I think you can think about your community uh, your small group, if you will, about as, as though they were another set of ears, another set of mouths, and another set of eyes. Just very quickly, let me show you what, what I mean by that. I, I spoke this week with a friend who told me what they do in their small group. She said, you know what we do? We do this thing called Lectio Divina, which is a fancy Latin phrase for spiritual reading. And we, we just simply open the text, and we read it out loud four times with silence in between. And we use four questions. These are the questions they use in their group. First we say, at the first reading, we say, listen for a word or phrase that strikes you. Silence, and then we share. And then we say, listen for an invitation from God. Reading, silence, and then we share. Third question, what's your response? And then finally, rest in the word. So embedded in this is the confidence that the Holy Spirit is taking the text and bringing it to life and that they have, they have a different set of ears you hear something I don't hear, and then they share with one another. And so when we do that, we borrow ears. The other thing we borrow are mouths. People who can say to us a truth that we cannot say to ourselves. And here I want to cite Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who in his great book called Life Together, which if you haven't read, you've got to read it and read it in your small group. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, God has put his word into the mouth of one in order that it may be communicated to another. When one person is struck by the word, he speaks it to the others. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother or in a sister, in the mouth of another. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged, for by himself he cannot help himself. He needs his brother as a man, as a bearer, and a proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. Now listen to this. I love this. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain, but his brother's or his sister's word is sure. So we need not just ears, but mouths. And then the third thing we need are um, eyes. Because you can't see yourself as you really are. I can't see myself as I really am. Nietzsche, the German philosopher, wrote, we are unknown, we knowers, to ourselves. Here in the Enlightenment, 
So we're learning all these things, the sciences, natural sciences, and theological sciences. We have this great optimism, competence, and we know everything. And here, middle of that, Nietzsche says, not so much. We might know everything except ourselves. You can't see yourself. When you try to look at yourself, you tend to see yourself in terms of the limitations of your past, your history. But that's not the way God sees you. He sees you in terms of your future and the hope he has for you. And that's really the context in which we find this one another passage. Because chapter 3 of Colossians is all about, if you look at the top, you can see it, seeing who you really are. He says in verse 3, he says, For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. He's saying, you can't see yourself, really. No one can see you, really. If you really want to know who you really are, the only way you can look at that is to look at Jesus Christ. And someday when Jesus is revealed, you also, the real you, will also be revealed. But you can live into that today through the, through the teaching of one another. Who is your team? Who's your team? And how do you study the word? How do you encourage one another, teach one another, admonish one another? You know, Mahalia Jackson stood with Martin because they were teaching one another to live with hope. And it wouldn't be long before Martin would lie dead in a coffin. And it would be Mahalia Jackson who would come and sing at his memorial service. And the singing is a sign of joy and victory. And that's where this passage goes next. And that's where we're invited to live Mahalia and Martin saw all the heartbreaking injustice, but they knew the promise of God in Jesus Christ. They knew that the future was coming in Christ to them today, and so they could say today, I have a dream today. I want to close with a a little parable of hope. Uh, It comes from one of the early biographers of Abraham Lincoln, a guy by the name of William Barton. This is called Parables of a Country Parson. And uh, I close with this because I think this is what we can be to one another as we give witness to Jesus Christ through his word. It's called the first Robin. Now the winter had gone long and very cold and the snow had been deep and the spring was not yet come. And I rose early in the morning and I looked out of mine window and behold, a Robin. And I called unto Keturah, that's his wife, And said, come quickly and see thou, hasten thine arrival at the window, for here is a friend of ours that is come from a far country to visit us. And Keturah came to the window, and she also beheld the robin. Now the robin looked at us and hopped about upon the cold and bare ground and looked for the early worm. But the bird was earlier than the worm. And Keturah went to her kitchen to see what she might find that the robin would eat. And I spake to the robin and said, Behold, thou hast been where it was warm, and the sun did shine. And thou couldst have stayed there, but here thou art. And thou comest while it is yet winter, for the prophecy of spring is in thy blood. Thy faith is the substance of things hoped for, and the evidence of things not seen. Thou hast come many miles, yea, hundreds of miles, to a land that lies desolate, Because thou hast within thy soul the assurance that spring is near. Oh, that there were in human life some assurance that would send folk forth to their high destiny with as compelling a conviction. 
And I thought of the eye, that it is formed in darkness, but formed for the light. And the ear, that is wondrously shaped in silence, but made for the hearing of music. And of the human soul, that is born into a world where sin is, yet born with the hope of righteousness. And I blessed the little bird that had caused me to think these things. And I went forth into town that day, and people said, Safed, that's his name, behold, is it not a cold and long winter? And I said, speak to me no more of winter. And they said, wherefore should we not speak of winter? Behold the thermometer in the empty coal bin. <laughs> but I held mine head proudly, and I said, speak to me not of winter. Behold, on this morning I did see the first robin. For me, henceforth, it is spring. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, God incarnate, living word. Many of us are standing in, in the metaphorical slums and ghettos of despair. But we do not stand alone, for you stand with us. You come to make your home in our midst today. And you have sent to us a people you call your body to point us to the way things are becoming in you, the one who makes all things new. So stand by us and grant that we might stand by and with and for one another under your word. In Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.